Everybody's waiting for the next instruction, aren't you? It's good to see everybody this morning. I was just thinking as we were singing those words, um, first of all, um, what a blessing it is to have all these musicians up here. This is a big weekend. They are doing a lot of uh, preparing, and um, I can just say personally, I think probably all of you would agree with me, um, what a blessing that is. Um, and I was thinking about the words we just sang. You know, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, you know what that means, right? That we will spend eternity singing together and um, what a blessing that is to just sing His praises for all of eternity. And what, he, what is even better is, may, I think the Word would tell me that I will be in tune. Um, <laughs> so, um, open with me to Isaiah 53. We're going to be in Isaiah 53 tonight. And I chose this text, which is kind of different. Normally, um, for Good Friday, we would be in the Gospels. But I chose Isaiah 53 for a couple reasons. Number one, um, our Savior um, quoted Isaiah 53, 12, and, and we're told about that. Uh, the Apostle Luke tells us about that in chapter 22, verse 37. When our Savior is quoted, He says, For I tell you that this Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And then He quotes, like I said, uh, chapter 53, um, uh, 12, verse 12 of Isaiah, saying, And He was numbered with the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And the other reason, I didn't realize this until I started uh, studying a little bit deeper, that the New Testament has over 80 references to this one chapter in Isaiah. And so just looking at that, I thought, well, if that's important enough for the New Testament writers, it's probably good for us tonight um, to look at that. So again, join me with, uh, with me in Isaiah 53. I'll read it for us. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would be with us in the, in the next few moments that we have to look at... The, the cross, the, the unbelievable power of the cross. It is almost more than we can understand. The depth, the, um, again, the power is almost uncomprehendable. But Father, I pray that as we open up your word, as we dig into the scripture, that we will see the great love in which you loved us, that you would send your son to be stricken, to be beaten, to be nailed to a cross before we were ever alive, before the beginning of time, so that we could have salvation in all eternity. So, Father, I just pray that you are with us. I pray that you are honored in everything that we say and do, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I looked at this scripture, I don't know about you, but it's very, very hard to comprehend all that the cross means, all that the cross means for our lives, all that it meant for Christ, all that it meant for eternity. And I started thinking about how to approach it. How, how do you take this um, prophecy and how do we make it to where we can somehow apply it to our lives and carry it forwards? It goes without saying that, that our world is, is in turmoil, sin prevails. We're seeing it more and more and more every day. And, and lots of times I think that's in the forefront of our minds. But as I, as, like I said, I continue to, to dive into this text I started to be concerned that I think maybe there's something even more dangerous that, that we're fighting um, in, in our Christian lives, in Christianity. And it's this. I think that we're living in a time where the gospel of Jesus Christ is being watered down. I think that we are struggling and we are seeing a dumbing down of true Christianity. Let me give you one example. Speaking at Dallas Theological Seminary, Andy Stanley said this, and I quote, We must tether the faith of this and the next generation to the resurrection rather than the inspiration, infallibility, and the authority of the Bible. Without the inspiration, infallibility, and authority of Scripture, you can't even get to the resurrection. And why is that? 
Well, because you don't come to the resurrection until you've realized the fall of man, the covenants between God and Israel, God choosing Jacob and not Esau, King David, the immaculate conception of Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry, his trial and suffering under Pontius Pilate, and finally his crucifixion. Because if you don't have the word, I don't think you could believe what actually happened on the cross. I wouldn't. It makes no sense. It makes no human sense that God the Son would leave heaven and come down and take on this flesh and die after living a sinless life for me. It makes no sense. And so when we have this type of thing going on, I am very, very concerned that we lose the power of the cross. We lose the power of the gospel. And, you know, the gospel is more than just having a relationship with Christ or asking Christ into our hearts. It is God and Christ working in tandem to save sinners. That is what the gospel is. It's about original sin, it's about penal substitution, it's about atonement, and it's about justification. And so why do I say all of those big words? Because we have all of that in these 12 verses. And by no means am I going to be able to unpack all of that tonight. No, by no means at all. However, my prayer is that as we look at this text that we, without these truths, we have no gospel. We will have no Sunday morning. We will have no resurrection. So join me back in, in Isaiah 53. Let's start to go through this text and unpack it. So in verses 1 through 4, we have several steps or several phases, if you will. And in verses 1 through 4, we have the prophet crying it out, and he starts out by saying, is anyone going to believe what I'm telling them? Has God revealed his strength to anyone? The prophet Isaiah, and, and if we have time, I would read through chapter 52, but the prophet Isaiah is almost lamenting. We've been talking about Jesus. I'm trying to spread this prophecy. And remember, who is the prophet Isaiah mainly talking to? Not mainly talking to. He's talking to Israel. However, what do we know about Israel? Through Jesus Christ, are we descendants of Abraham? Yes. So this easily applies to us. So, verses 1 through 4, again, I'll just read it for us. It says again, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So what we start to see here is we start to see a picture of Jesus Christ. And this right off the bat, I think, flies in the face of what, if we were writing the story, what we would write. We would not write about the hero of the story being someone that no one wants to look at. 
We would not write the story to where the hero is despised and rejected. We're told here that he grew up before God in the line of David when we see that he grew up in, in uh, or like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He grew up in that line. He grew up before God. But then the prophet goes right on to say that he had no form or majesty. His bodily appearance was nothing to look at. He definitely did not look like royalty, even though he was. And because he was despised and rejected by men, he was, he was a sorrowful man. He was no stranger to grief. It even goes on to say he was the kind of per person um, that no one would even look at. He was the kind of person that was despised, causes others to be repulsed. So we see that Israel did not esteem him. They didn't look at him as important. Christ was really experiencing what many, if not all of us, have experienced in our lives. That we go through all the time in our lives. If we don't have status, if we don't have the right looks, if we don't have money, if we don't have the job, what happens? We're looked down upon. We're ignored. We're mistreated. So what does that tell us? What does that tell us about our Savior? It reminds us that Jesus Christ, who is God, has experienced these same struggles firsthand. Teens in the room, you under, are under immense stress. You have unbelievable stress and pressure. But your Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has experienced it all. He has experienced it all. So when you go to him in prayer, when you go to God in prayer, he understands. He has been through it. And unlike you who is a sinner, he's not a sinner. He came here. He's the son of God. And he is treated in this way. How many of us would stand for that? How many of us would mic drop and leave? But that's not what Jesus did. How do I know this? Well, in Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we're told this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace uh, to help in the time of need. We can have confidence because of just these first few verses that we see about Jesus Christ and just who he was. We haven't even gotten to his work on the cross yet. He understands and we can have confidence in who he is and the fact that he loves us so much. But it's not only that he can sympathize, it goes much deeper than that. In 1 John 3, 5, it says this, And you know that he was manifested in order to take 
away sins, and in him there is no sin. So when we look at verse 4 back in our text, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So we are told how he took them away. He has borne our sin, or in other words, he has lifted them up and he has carried them. The Apostle Peter explained it rightly by saying this, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. So we must realize here that this is not saying that Jesus Christ suffered along with us. No. What he did was he picked up our sins and he he took them on uh, on himself and carried them all the way to the cross. But look what Israel did. In verse 4, in the second half of verse 4, it says, Yet he is, uh, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. This is just like Job's friends. They looked at Jesus as deserving of this. He must have done something to be stricken and to be smitten by God and afflicted. They didn't even see that he was without sin. Now, I, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. You notice something, or you may have noticed it, but I'm going to point it out to you if you didn't, that we have past tense. In verse 3, for instance, he was despised and rejected. This is prophecy, right? This is the Old Testament. This is before Christ. So how can the prophet Isaiah use past tense? Well, it it can be called in theology um, prophecy perfect tense, meaning that this prophecy was so clear to the prophet that it was he saw it as sure to happen. It was so clear to him that he was seeing it almost as it had already occurred. So when we read this, we can almost, maybe if you close your eyes and you picture what that prophecy must have looked like, this this, um, message from God, how it was portrayed to the prophet was so clear that the prophet knew it was going to happen. So as we continue through here, keep that in the back of your mind. So going back to what I was saying, sorry, I had to interrupt and, and throw that in there. So they looked at Christ as deserving. But in verse 5, the prophet reminds us that even though he was smitten by God and afflicted, he starts out with the word but. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Why? Why the false trial? Why the mistreatment? Why the flogging? Why the agony? Why the cross? It's because in verse 6, all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity 
of us all. It's because of us. We did it. All the sin, all the freedom of the will that we think we are owed, all of the entitlement that we think that we possess to go and do whatever we want, that is what caused our Savior's suffering and death. You see, the cross exposes the wretchedness of the human race, our wretchedness. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We're very familiar with this verse or with these verses. But when we look at it in the light of what we're seeing here in Isaiah 53, I think it, almost, it takes on a greater meaning. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. The Apostle Paul says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lip, lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is why the cross, that is why Christ went through everything that he went through. This is substitution. This is substitutionary atonement. Christ didn't merely take away our sins. Christ carried our grief, our sorrow, and our sin to the cross. God placed it all on Christ. And so we see in verses 7 through 9 that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So because of our sin, he is, was there to fulfill his calling, to carry out a mission, to take up the cup that only he could drink from. And so that's why we see there that he was led to the slaughter. He didn't protest. How many of us, when we were not guilty, that we were trying to do good for somebody, is being led and treated that way, how many of us would just keep our mouth shut? Not me. I wouldn't. I would go kicking and screaming all the way. But he didn't protest. Even though he was unfairly oppressed and judged, he didn't 
even open his mouth when he was led away. Why? Because he loves us. Because he came here for a purpose. And we can almost feel in that the prophet, as he cries out, who in this generation even knew why Christ was dying? Few even considered the fact that because of sin, he deserved to be struck. And again, whose sin was it? It was our sin. It was Israel's sin. So he was crucified along with two criminals. And it was intended that he would be buried along with them in common graves. He was hung with criminals. And when he died, he would just be cast out like other criminals. And if it wasn't for Joseph of Arimathea, who is the rich man in our text, and Nicodemus who brought spices we read in the Gospels, that's the only reason Christ was buried in a tomb, in a new tomb. So you have Christ who was a man that no one would even look on him. There was nothing about him that would draw people to pay any attention to him. He was sorrowful. He was full of grief. He, he picked up and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. And then after he died and gave up his spirit, as I said, luckily, even though he was intended to be put in with common criminals, he was laid in the tomb. And we all know this very, very well. But we come now to, I think, one of the most striking, um, troubling, amazing verses in all of Scripture. Look with me at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What does it mean that it pleased Yahweh or God or the Lord to crush him? It means that it pleased God to crush him. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that he was pleased that Jesus was crushed by others. No, it means that he was pleased to do it himself. And he put him to grief. So we have to be careful here. Does this mean that Yahweh all of a sudden changed his mind and doesn't love the Son anymore? Is that what that means? Church, is that what that means? Did God change? So what could it be? Why would it please God to crush the Son? It was because our Savior had been made to be sin. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I don't know about you, but I think this should frighten us to the core. Even though we tend, I tend, to brush off sin, pass it off as human condition, oh, Aaron just messed up again. I'm a sinner saved by grace. God sees it totally different. Because he is so holy, he is pleased to crush the sinner. That probably makes you a little uncomfortable this evening. It probably should. It probably should make you and I very uncomfortable. Because again, as I started out, without Scripture, where do we most often go? That God loved us so much that He sent His Son to die for us. And that sounds great. And is that the truth? Yes, John 3, 16. However, without the Scripture, we doesn't go any further than that. And I am more than willing, I don't, know, I don't know about you, I am more willing to turn away from and not spend a lot of time looking at the fact that my Creator God is pleased to crush me if I'm a sinner. I would rather just kind of brush that off over here and just look at Jesus coming to save me. But as we see here, this all goes together. This is only 12 verses, and all of this is packed into these 12 verses. See, God doesn't see the sinner as a victim. He sees the sinner as an enemy. So, how did he, how was he pleased to crush his son? Because Christ had taken on the sin. Christ became sin. And so, when Christ, as Pastor Dan already, already mentioned, when our Savior cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because of this. It's because of this. So continue with me. In verse 10, actually, I'm going to go on to verse 11. We're running short on time. It says, out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So out of this anguish, he shall see and be satisfied. So at the end of Isaiah, we've seen Christ come on the scene. No one wants to look at him. He is nothing. He bears our iniquities. He is chastised. He goes to the cross. And then he is buried. And then we see that it pleased God to crush him. But at the end, I am so glad that it didn't just stop there. Because at the end, what we see is that Christ is exalted. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He is bearing our iniquities, and in that he is exalted. 
In Philippians 2.9, it says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. So in verse 12, Isaiah 53 ends with the foretelling of what we will celebrate on Sunday. And more importantly, what we enjoy on our side of eternity. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I want to end in Romans 8. Turn with me to Romans 8. Verse 34, it says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so why did God crush his son? It was because he loved us, because he was making a way for us. Can you say tonight that you're a conqueror through Christ? Will you put your faith in the fact that God placed your sin on Christ and he bore your punishment so that you could be reconciled to the Father? If not, I don't know what you're waiting on. Because what we've seen here in Isaiah 53, hundreds of years before Christ actually came on the earth, it was done. It was finished. We see now when Christ on the cross, his last dying breath, he says to Telestai, it is finished because he had finished it. He had fulfilled prophecy. And so we are just called to believe it, to put our faith in that, to put our faith in something that has already been completed, to put our confidence in this. So again, as we close, before we even get to Sunday, I'm going to ask you, what are you going to do with the cross of Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with his death? What are you going to do with the beating 
and the mistreatment because it wasn't for him. It was for all of us. Join me in a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to never get comfortable with the gospel. Help us to never water down the gospel to a bunch of catchphrases. What we have just seen here in Isaiah 53 is your plan from all of eternity. The Father and the Son working together for us, for sinners, for those who would not seek after you. And in spite of all of that, you sent your one and only Son. Help us to always fall at the foot of the cross. Allow that to always be our firm foundation. Knowing that because of what Jesus did on the cross, and now that the fact that he is at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, that we should not fear. There's nothing on this side of eternity that should cause us anxiety or stress or fear. Because we know that our treasure is in heaven. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you tell us so clearly your plan for us. As you, you tell us so clearly about your love and the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father. We thank you for being with us this evening, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.